Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN merch button click on that it'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that hey on the swag that i'm using it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear sports history network and my favorite podcaster the sports history network store shop there today blog talk radio Tonight, we'll go back in time to seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more third game, one final score that would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History of its Memorabilia. Oh, the Gridiron Greats, publishing and broadcasting a network. We're in conjunction with Swick Enterprises, and we're live from the Southport, North Carolina home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America that focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia. You can find us on the web app. RedIronGreatsMagazine.com It is at this time I'd like to introduce my co-host The senior contributing writer To Greats Magazine A book called Memorable Story Specializing in pre-World War II items In particular Red Grange And also Seattle Seahawk items In particular Steve Larges He hailed From Portland, Oregon Mr. Joe Squires Joe Welcome to the show this time. <laughs> ah, great to be on the show again, Bob. I've, I've missed talking to you. Joe, glad to be back. And uh, we're in for a very interesting show tonight. And uh, when our yeah. special guest comes on, we'll have a very different type of introduction for him and a very different show this evening talking about a subject near and dear to all football fans uh, in our listing area but before we get started yeah. we're, we're going to uh talk old yet new and something that <laughs> happened beginning on saturday night and yep. was played on sunday and was played last night and that's the new <laughs> old but new usfl united states football league uh, the recreation, in a way, yep. of the same teams that played from 1983 to 1985. A time frame in my life, I uh, was single until I got married the first time in 85, and uh, I enjoyed many a summer and spring day watching yep. USFL football on TV. And uh, I was a big New Jersey Generals fan and uh, enjoyed the games. It was a wide open game. It was very exciting watching, and yep, uh, yep. to me, it, it was uh, it was a nice. It was a, a real nice um, break or 
our segue into the fall season of CFL, NFL, and college football, high school football at the time. Yeah. And uh, totally. brought back a lot of memories, a lot of memories for me. But uh, I Saturday night I got the TV on, and I'm watching the Generals uh, play the Stallions of Birmingham. And um, it was an interesting game. And if, if they had kept the momentum from the first two drives, it would have been a real shootout. And uh, unfortunately, there was a little few blips along the way. Sunday, two games ended up being only two out of the three games played for the simple reason uh, they had bad weather down there. And uh, the third game got canceled, got played last night. The attendance yeah. on Sunday was, was pretty much non-existent, which I can see why. And, uh, you know, even though there's more att- in attendance last night, it still was a little uh, a little rough spot. And uh, the play was, was interesting on Saturday, and it was uh, even more interesting on Sunday. And Monday's game uh, kind of uh, just was a – Accumulation of everything put together of a, of a, an idea yeah. once again of spring football. So uh, my, my take on it is is a little is um, somewhat uh, again uh, I, I'm trying not to be critical of it, but again I'm, we're not looking at, a, at an NFL game in any way, shape, or form. We're looking at what what amounts to being a semi-pro minor league football. Uh, and uh, what we're looking at is uh, some teams that really have uh, really got to play a little better if they're going to remain competitive for the season. Yes. And and I think one of the one of the big issues that they have in trying to develop a fan base when you're playing all your games in Alabama, it's going to be tough for those other seven teams to try to gain, you know, a fan base because uh, I certainly yep. am not going to drive down there to watch the generals play. You know what I mean? So yep. uh, an interesting I, take on the, on the, on the entire uh, concept of it. Yep. And I really don't know where it's going to go. Yeah. And you touched on a few things there. I, I caught a little bit of the Saturday game with the generals. Um, first of all, I didn't even notice that all the games were played in Alabama. I, I, I actually didn't notice that until you just said it. Uh, yeah, but you know one of the big differences is you know the USFL in you know eighty you know eighty three eighty four was a professional football league. They were drafting people out of college, notably you, yep. you know your Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Herschel Walker, uh, and now they are considered a, a now they're not you know they're they're not trying to compete with the NFL. They're like you mentioned a minor league. It's you know it's a, it's, a, it's a farm team. It's people who want to get into the NFL, so they're playing hard. But uh, And that's a big difference. Uh, and I, I didn't know that before I looked it up on Saturday. I was watching a little bit of the game. You know, and that's another problem is I'm on the West Coast, so there's a time difference. They're televising, televising them live, and they play them at a, right. you know, at a, at a different, different time here. Uh, eight teams again, uh, New, the New Orleans Breakers were the Portland Breakers. So the original USFL mm-hmm. had the Portland Breakers for a year, and then they moved to New Orleans. So the, the eight teams again. The furthest west team is the you know Houston. So they're you know it's a completely East Coast league. Uh, the games are played East Coast time, as you mentioned. All of them in Alabama, which I didn't know until you mentioned it. And it's it's minor league, so it, it's going to be a yep. tough go. Uh, yep. So. Now one one thing that's okay. in, uh, one one thing one thing that's interesting to note about the US uh, the new league is that at playoff time they're going to be playing the playoff games at the Hall of Fame uh football field in Canton, Ohio because there was some sort of scheduling <laughs> issue down in uh Alabama there. So um that might spark a little more interest in getting people obviously from Ohio there, but again, that's not a big stadium one way or the other to, you know, gain people. But again, I can't really see them, you know, getting a a 40 to 50,000 crowd where they are now. And if you see the way, and you might've noticed that the game, how they uh, covered up big sections of the seats 
And uh, Sunday's just sad because there's they, oh. I, I, they must have they must have had like a hundred people in the stands at at the most. So, oh. uh, I don't I know they had bad weather, That's so it definitely definitely put people away. So that uh, that impacted them at the same time also. So it's it's interesting, you know. Again, yeah. And uh, you made the, the the very very poignant comparison that. You're looking at minor league football rather than professional football like you did in the in the mid '80s. There, yep, totally. So it's a, it's a, a completely different uh, feel to the game. And as much as you want to try to remember back the '83, '84, '85 season with USFL, it's not going to be there. You know what I mean? So. Uh, Couple of, be a couple of cool things I liked is uh, their play clock is their play clock instead of uh, what forty five is thirty five so the action was a little quicker uh, I liked that um, halftime was much shorter so uh, you know there wasn't this you know big pause and any action uh, in between halves yeah uh, things just moved a little quicker. I think some of the things that are frustrating fans with the NFL right now, you know, it's 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 becoming a very rule oriented where it's just like nobody nobody really knows what's definitive for a catch. I mean, did he have control? One foot in bound. I mean, uh, you know, there's just there's so many little nuances to you know. I remember watching you know on Monday Night Football they used to have the you make the call, you know, things where they yeah. show some yeah. you know a, a a play and then they'd you know you make the call. And then a commercial break, they'd come back and, you know, uh, you know, and those are great. And it seemed like we knew the rules. We could make a definitive right, right. answer. And now it's tough. Uh, you know, it's a lot more passer friendly. So, I mean, you look sideways at the, you know, at the quarterback and, you know, it's a penalty. You, you know, you put a hand on a receiver and it, it's a penalty. It's, it's very offense rated, uh, you know, or geared, uh, you know, the rules are nowadays. And, you know, we, we want to protect our quarterbacks and, our stars, but at the same time, you know, you hear a lot of people complaining it's turning it in, into a two-hand touch league, you know? Right, 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 right. And I agree I agree with that 100%. And, you know, and, and I always say I watch a lot of – this past season I watched a lot of high school football down here. And I'll tell you, it, it, it was just nice to see actual plays play out and you could actually see some continuity on the field because you don't have a hundred, you know, timeouts for uh, commercials, so there's an actual flow to the game. You know what I mean? And I think the bigger problem yeah. with the NFL continues to be just the sheer number of the TV timeouts that really are distracting to the game and distracting to the flow of the game. And uh, I just yeah. think they would be better off doing, doing like a, a pocket of seven or eight minutes of commercials after the quarter is over and at least play out the quarter, you know. But I know, uh, you know it'll never happen because, uh, obviously, they're, they're finance-driven and, you know, they're going to sell as many ads as, as, they can possible, as they can possibly can. And that's, uh, you know, the function of the game today. So it'll be interesting. To see. The last I, I got a feeling I got a feeling this USFL is on a little better financial standing than the uh, American Alliance for Football from a few seasons back that didn't even make it, yeah. make it through the year. And, um, again, I, I I rank the play basically the same as that. I mean, there's really not that much difference to me. And I still enjoy watching How, the good uh, arena football. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Who, uh, I, still, who I, still owns, enjoy, I, I didn't bother looking up. Who owns the teams? I mean, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the New Jersey Generals, the Breaker. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I'm curious who owns the teams. Where they find a spot? I bet, that I got to research a little more because I'm under the I'm under the impression it is like a it's a like a corporation that owns the league, and they in turn own the own the teams. But I got to check on that a little more more closely. And um, you know, some of the information on the league is is pretty pretty guarded, and other uh, information is is much more readily you know available. So it's it's interesting to see. It's uh, you know. Well, it's trying to be spring entertainment once again. And again, well, well, it's I wish him well. Last, well no. <laughs> yeah. I wish, I I wish him well. Uh, 
you know, as you, uh, you know, you've got a tattoo on your inner thigh that says football 24-7. So here we are. Anybody who's trying to put <laughs> spring football in, you know, I, I wish them well. I tip the hat because you just nailed it. I, I go to high school games. I live about half a mile from a high school. And uh, I had my electric company sponsor them. So, you know, we get sideline passes. We get uh, – they invited yeah, me to yeah. call a game once, but I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't, I don't have the, I don't have the Bob Swick voice to call a football game. <laughs> uh, but you know, I have uh, season tickets to the University of Oregon Ducks. Uh, but I love watching football. Uh, you know, I yeah, probably went to yeah. about four high school games this year, three college games, and off we go. Yeah, twenty four seven, man. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I understand. So we'll see what happens as the season goes on. Our special guest is yep. here tonight, and we have a different guest than normal, but once uh, our listeners start to hear uh, his field of expertise, yep. it will be very interesting for them to learn about a subject that is very dear to many football fans' hearts. At this time, I'd like to introduce our special guest, He's written for 30 years for American Track and Field, along with Run Blog Run. He is the former president of the Staten, A- Staten Island Athletic Club and chair of the Staten Island Running Association, was the fifth man scorer for his Susan Wagner High School New York City Cross Country City Championship team. He was also a member of the College of Staten Island Sports Hall of Fame for Cross Country, He serves currently as the long-distance running chairman for the USA Track and Field Foundation out of New York, a passionate or fanatical follower of the sport. Some of his subjects have included Sebastian Cox, Emma Coburn, Coughlin, Matt Centrick, Jim Spivey, Galen Rupp, Joe Newton, Tom Fleming, A.J. Wilson, Bill Rogers, Alan Webb, Abel Kiviot, Jordan Assay, Marty LaCour, Chester Samana, Rod Dixon, Carl Lewis, and Jim Mark, as well as book reviews and articles covering meets and races in the northeastern part of the United States. At this time, I'd like to welcome Mr. Jeff Benjamin to our show. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, although I think I would border more on the fanatical than uh, passion. But then again, I think all, all of us are definitely passionate about the sports that we love for sure. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. This is Joe. Thanks for being on the show. I uh, I loved your articles that you wrote on uh, on Jim Thorpe. And uh, as I mentioned when I was emailing back and forth, it just uh, Jim Thorpe's one of my favorite you know players to collect. He's just you know entrenched in you know NFL history. And anybody who anybody who's you know got the gumption to write an article about Jim Thorpe, I want to talk to him about it. I appreciate that. It was no easy feat, believe me. Uh, you know, looking into Jim Thorpe has opened a lot of doors uh, to me in my life, meeting remarkable people. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, as I get older, um, I remember um, years ago ESPN had that TV show, The Sports Century, back in – it's still on now, but they had a Sports Century in 2000 where there's 100 episodes where they ranked the 100 yeah. greatest athletes of the 20th century. Yep. And went, I remember they went back – it was like two shows a week, you know, to fill out the 52 weeks, so yep. to speak. And yep. if I'm correct, I believe Thorpe was number three. And then right. I believe it was right. Babe Ruth, and then they had Michael Jordan. So right. if, if right. I remember yeah. correctly. And, you know, listen, whenever you yep. make up a list, you know, we, we could argue a lot of stuff, uh, modern technology, the nutrition, equipment, training of today versus the past, yep. uh, fields. You know, the conditions, uh, the way people lived 100 years ago compared to today. You know, there's a lot of variables, a lot of variables. But the more I get older, the more I study Thorpe. And, you know, uh, you got to be careful a little bit because there is some exaggerations out there. When you really hold on to the, you know, valuable sources that are pretty, you know, good, uh, boy, this guy was incredible. Just incredible. Yeah. He changed football. He paved the way. Between him and him and Red Grange, probably you know the the foundation of the NFL we know today. Oh yeah, absolutely. And he, and he was the first president of the NFL as well. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. I have a, I have a picture of Jim Thorpe that hangs in my office of Jim Thorpe sitting at his desk. And it, obviously it's a photo op. It's him signing a piece of paper. There's nothing else in the room except for a coat rack and nothing on his desk. I'm like, poor Jim, you know, uh, you know, obviously made the president because, you know, he was the name, you know, before, you know, Carr. But it, it, it's, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a great photo you have. And I, I have a few things as well. There's a, it's a little bit of an off-the-cuff story, but in like 1951, just before Jim passed away, he was at some kind of fly fishing event, and he met Ted Williams, the great hitter. And uh, uh-huh. there's some photos of that online and stuff, and Topps actually made a card of them together. There's which, a card, uh, there's you know, a card of ballpark it, yeah. between like 500, depending on the condition. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of funny, you know, yeah. suppose, you know, I would say the greatest hitter in baseball meeting the greatest athlete, you know? Yep. So, but mm-hmm. um, no, he's very, very remarkable, very, very remarkable guy. Um, uh, my, 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 uh, my gateway to Jim Thorpe came through a Staten Island connection. Uh, Abel Kibiat, who uh, yeah. in 1912 was the first ratified world record holder in the 1500 meters, the mile. He said it three times in 1912 going to the Stockholm Olympic Games. And Abel would go on to win a silver medal in that race, which some people consider the greatest race ever run. And then he later on won a gold medal in a defunct 3,000-meter relay. But his big thing is is that he and Jim were roommates on the boat going to Stockholm. Uh, A lot of athletes classified as minorities were thrown at the steerage. And, uh, you know, Kvyat was down there with him. And if any any of your any of your viewers want to um, Google Abel Kvyat on YouTube, there's a 15-minute piece where the Olympic producer from years ago, Bud Greenspan, in 1984, brought Abel back to the Stockholm Stadium where he performed like 70 years earlier. And Kvyat, very animated, tells the stories, tells some great stories about Jim Thorpe, which I don't want to reveal here. I want people to, you know, Google yeah, it and check incredible. out the video. You know, uh, really great. And, uh, you know, Kvyat does say he's the greatest athlete he ever saw. Uh, you know, he would see him actually uh, sitting in the stands watching him play for the New York Giant base team for a season, hmm. you know, before he embarked on yeah. his NFL stuff, you know. But um, we got yeah. to know Abel here on Staten Island because Abel died in 1991 at the age of 99. I mean, he was a living legend in our borough, and uh, I was fortunate enough to meet him a bunch of times. Uh, I remember one time we were driving Abel back to his uh, retirement home, and one of my friends said, Mr. Kvyat, would you mind if we came in to look at your awards? And uh, Kvyat said, no. And my friend said, why? He said, you don't got time. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, uh, we, but, 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 we, but we did go in, and, yeah, there was a plethora of stuff, meets like the Milrose Games, national championships, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, w- one thing that I find kind of unfortunate is, is that the story of Jim Thorpe, has kind of become like a 20th century biography thing. Like I remember being in fourth yeah. grade in school and I'm 57 and you read biographies on famous Americans, not only from presidential uh, political history, but all kinds of history. And yeah, we, we read Jim Thorpe and uh, J- Jim Thorpe's really not taught much, very much anymore. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jeff, to, to lead, to lead off our, question and answers tonight you obviously are a great friend and champion of the cause to restore jim thorpe's olympic wins now how did you become such an advocate for him and the olympic medals yeah i appreciate that um basically uh most of us are aware like i said the younger generation might not be aware you know um i still teach here on staten island actually do teach a sports history class many people are unaware of jim thorpe and uh Basically, here's the situation. Uh, up until 1988, to participate in the Olympic Games, an athlete had to be an amateur athlete, meaning mm-hmm. they could not make any kind of money based on their athletic reputation or their athletic performances. Okay? If they did, and they already participated in the Olympic Games prior, they could be stripped of everything. Okay? What they did after the Olympic Games is irrelevant. Bruce Jenner would win the 1976 on gold medalist. And after those Olympics, Bruce, now Caitlin, you know, made a ton of money in all the ventures that she has done ever since. But what people don't realize about Jenner is that leading up to those Olympics for a seven-year period, Bruce lived in an apartment where he had to train every day. 
and his girlfriend had to work to to uh, to support them because you could not make money based on your if you showed up to a clinic if you showed up you know if you tried to open up a store based on your athletic stuff you were banned you know and uh, you had a real by the book some people would say harsh people who yep. ran yep. you know Olympic sport who really strictly enforced this I mean strictly okay. And the big guys at the top during that era in 1912 were Avery Brundage and Dan Ferris. And Brundage would later on not only run the U.S. Olympic stuff, but the World Olympic stuff. He was chairman of the IOC uh, until his death in the late 70s. And uh, what happened with Jim, Jim played Carlisle football, as we all know. And that was college. But during the summertime, his coach, Pop Warner, would farm out his athletes to play some minor league baseball, semi-pro baseball. And, uh, you know, with all due respect, Jim was probably paid, I don't know, enough for room and board, uh, nothing extravagant. But most of the Native American players on the Carlisle team would use fake names so that they wouldn't get caught up in this amateur thing if they decided to become Olympic athletes, right? Mm-hmm. However, Jim Thorpe was caught, you know, they, they you know, and uh, – Jim just kept his name and kept on and played semi-professional baseball, I believe, in the summer of 1911. So when he went to the Olympic Games and the Olympic trials to make the team and then the Olympic Games, technically this was dug up, I think, like a year later that, you know, he had been paid money to play semi-professional baseball, okay? And yep. uh, that, led, that led to his losing his medals and being stricken from the record books. Okay. Now, there's a lot of controversy with that. First of all, the International Olympic Committee rules gave a certain time period where you were supposed to uh, report that athlete. And, you know, for years after that, and especially after Jim Thorpe passed away in the 1950s, people had a big crusade to try to get his medals restored. As Abel Kiviat said, the guy was just paid, like, meal money and, you know, rent, you know, like, and considered very disgraceful by a lot of the athletes. But the powers that be really controlled this stuff really seriously. Yes. So uh, along came a fellow named Robert Wheeler with his wife, Flo Ridlon. And Robert Wheeler would write the Paramount biography of Jim Thorpe, which was published in the early 70s. And Bob Wheeler spent his life uh, traveling around the country, hitching rides, <laughs> paying taxis to meet people such as President Dwight Eisenhower, who played for Army against Jim Thorpe. Uh, Burt yep. Lancaster, who played Thorpe in the only movie ever made back in, like, 1952, uh, and hundreds of other people. And the big thing that Bob Wheeler and his wife were also promoting was the restoration of the medals to the Thorpe family. And uh, Bob, by the way, who's still alive and at a young, I think, late 70s, uh, age of the state of mind for Bob, his passion is still there, um, he even went to Avery Brundage. And Brundage, for some reason, gave bob access to some of the jim thorpe stuff which bob never thought he would see and uh it was his wife flo who found out that the ioc rule of you know thorpe being reported a year after the event and so in 1984 the ioc restored the thorpe family with uh two gold medals from the pentathlon and the uh, decathlon they're not the original but he, ones but, he, but they were given but he's some. still listed He's, he's not listed as the sole winner, which is one of the right. one of the the, the 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 problems. Right, that is the problem because whenever I talk to people, and uh, you know, I even interviewed Caitlyn Jenner a few years ago about the Jim Thorpe stuff, and you know, C- Caitlyn even said, "Wait a second, uh, he got the medals back, so is the record book restored?" And the answer is no. The IOC still does not list Thorpe as the sole winner. So Bob Wheeler, along with some other key people, Nedra Darling, Abraham Taylor, and a few others, uh, have led a movement called Bright Path Strong. And Bright Path Strong is the name of the movie that is in the works right now, which will hopefully be out eventually. And uh, Bright Path Strong Petition, which you can find online, just Google Bright Path Strong Petition, is asking people to sign so that they can send eventually to the IOC all these signatures. saying that, you know, Thorpe should be listed as the undisputed champion of these events. Soul, soul winner. 
And, uh, you know, from an NFL perspective, the Doug Williams Institute uh, is also a big ally with this push. They published something really huge about three months ago, you know, like basically, once again, raising this idea that, you know, a great injustice was done. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Thorpe also demolished his competition, as many people know. It wasn't even close (laughs) in both events. So, you know, um, and, you know, like, like I said, you know, you know, in that era, you know, you won a certain athletic event. They awarded you with a camera. You had to decline the camera. You could take a watch because it was valued less, but a camera was too expensive. If you took the camera, you were banned. Like, you know, these archaic rules that were happening yep. during this era, you know, fortunately today they're not around pretty much anymore. But, yeah. you know, for Thor- I remember in, Harry- uh, and I remember in 88 when those they went away with that. And then you had 1992, you had the Dream Team basketball that went on to yeah, decimate yeah. all the amateurs. And yeah, that yeah, was the, yeah. you know, beginning. Hey, it, would, it, yeah, it, it would be great if at the Winter Olympics has American football, we could throw some NFL guys in there. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Okay, so you, you <laughs> right? touched us a little bit. We, we, we have some we have, we have some you know questions later on you know that, uh, sure. that touch on this, but um, you you mentioned movie Bright Path. I mean, it's coming up following you know the Bright Path Twitter handle. Uh, you know on you know for quite a while, just you know some amazing information on uh, you know on Jim Forbes, and that's where I saw you posting up some of those uh, articles you wrote. Uh, you know, it stars, uh, you know, Martin Sensmeyer, uh, you know, as Jim Thorpe. It's produced by Angelina Jolie, which is obviously going to be, you know, put some star power to it. How, how did you get involved in the movie? I, I think you were brought on as a consultant. Yeah, so, so somewhat loosely. Basically, um, when I started writing uh, a little bit about Thorpe about in 2016, um, I was actually contacted by Bob Wheeler. And uh, Bob has become like my pretty much my de facto uncle, <laughs> you know, uh, my <laughs> uncle figure. And uh, but Bob and I do talk quite often. And Bob's, Bob is a, you know, there there as you know that like any production, there are always producers listed with many names. So you know, I know you mentioned Angelina Jolie, but Bob is also a producer, as is Abraham Taylor, and also from the NFL circles, uh, giant owner Steve Tisch is also listed as a producer. Hmm. So. Um, yeah, wow. and uh, basically, like I said, they, they've been going full speed ahead, but I think the COVID has slowed them down significantly, you know? And, uh, you know, Hollywood, I think everybody would agree, is a very strange place when it comes to making a movie of some sort. And, uh, you know, uh, I would think if the COVID had not hit two years ago, I think filming would have absolutely been underway at this point, in my own opinion. But, uh, but like I said, I know that they're still working on it. They're still trying to get it done, and it's definitely in the works. It's just a matter of when are they going to be able to get this film done, you know? Um, from another perspective, by the way, what's going to be easy, because talking with some of these people involved with the film, uh, filming at the Stockholm Olympics is not going to be that difficult because the outside of the Stockholm Olympic Stadium looks the same as it did in 1912. Uh-huh. Um, the town of Carlisle, and I have a second house in uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, and Carlisle is only like 20 minutes away. Carlisle itself, the main streets, uh, the areas around there, still have that 1900 flavor. And uh, the Army War College, which back then was called the Indian School, where Thorpe was discovered, you know, their track, which is dirt cinder, uh, the football field, the stands are still the same from pretty much 1911, 1912. So, like, it's almost like hallowed ground. So if they're looking to film – in those areas, they should have no problem. But like I said, that's logistics, and uh, I'm not a Hollywood guy. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know for, uh, you know, what they're all planning to do. Yeah. But this is – they really want to get this movie going, um, and at the same time they're paralleling it with the petition, you know, imploring people to please read the petition and please sign it. Yeah. About a year ago I went on Google Earth and took a tour around the exterior of that Stockholm Stadium. But like you said, it is the yeah. exact same. And you can hold the postcard up showing the exterior from the 1912 Olympics, and you can right. look at the Google Earth map, and it is nearly identical. But how, how are you involved in the movie? I, I think at some point it was mentioned that you were brought in as, a, as an expert or something like that. Well, um, I, I'm more involved in the track and field perspective and um, also, oh, from the Abel gotcha. Kibia, also from the Abel Kibiat perspective. 
you know, um, that makes sense. you know, the one thing is like, you know, obviously whenever they're writing a script, they're looking at different angles, different things to include. Um, I do know that the major theme, which tragically has followed Jim Thorpe since 1912, is the injustice that was done to him. And one, one wonders, you know, if it's racially motivated and things like that. Even Abel Kiviat, who was Jewish, he was banned for about six years over the violation of amateur rules. Uh, he was asking for transportation money to run a meet up in Buffalo. <laughs> and, you know, by asking them for money, he got a six-year ban. But Abel got a lawyer, went to court, took on the governing body, and he won. So the injustice thing is definitely what they're looking at. And, you know, with the Carlisle Indian School, um, those schools which have been in the media a little bit recently, uh, there was one in Canada that was yeah. mentioned as well recently, you know, uh, their goal was to Americanize these Native American kids. The Native American yep. wars had ended around 1870, 1880. So 1912 is not a long time, not long time after. So, you know, kids were sent there. They had their heads shaved. They had to become Christian. They were given white names. And uh, without a doubt, there was definitely physical, emotional abuse, which sadly took yep. its toll on a number of these students. Like if you go to the Army War College today, you know, as soon as you go to the gate, there are cemetery, there's a cemetery right there, about 180 graves of Native American children who died at the Carlisle Indian School. And when you look at the graves, most of them have white names with the name of their tribe that they were from. You know? So what and uh, from what I know, yeah, and from what I know, like, you know, with, with a lot of Native American religious belief, belief and culture, um, many tribes believe that they have to be buried in the land of their ancestors. You know, if they're buried not in the land of their ancestors, they feel that their soul wanders blind forever. And uh, I know recently uh, I read um, they exhumed uh, two uh, two bodies from the uh, Carlisle Indian School and sent them to, uh, I believe it was uh, Lakota Indian Reservation to be buried. Mm. You know, but what, why do, but, but the, why do you go why, ahead, Jeff? Why why do you think? Um, you know, at that time or even up until this time, and I know you wrote a blog uh, entry one time where um, Thorpe being a Native American was actually edited out of it. Why, why do you think, uh, for whatever reason, they did not want to refer him, A, to, to being a Native American, and B, how did his life parallel from being one of the greatest athletes in the world to a man who basically died in poverty. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's funny you bring it up. Uh, Bob Wheeler has a lot to do with that as well, as well as uh, his wife, Flo. Um, the big mystery we have is, is that there is a fantastic International Olympic Committee released uh, DVD movie set. I think you can download it now, too, Fomani, which has like three and a half hours of the 1912 Olympics, some of them in full events, including Abel Kibiat's 1,500-meter silver medal race, right? However, when you come to Thorpe, the only thing available on that film for Thorpe is when he receives his awards from King Gustav of Sweden, where he wins the award for the decathlon and the pentathlon. The athletic events are nowhere to be found. And so what happened was Bob Wheeler found somebody in Oklahoma who knew the Thorpe family and had one of those old real films, you know, that are in those metal cases and all that stuff. And they went through it, and apparently there was, like, some kind of, like, cut or some kind of marker all through the Thorpe stuff except for a few frames. So the article I wrote was it's a photo that Bob took from the film of Jim Thorpe doing the pole vault at the Stockholm Olympics for the decathlon event where you run with the pole and go over. And mm -hmm. all we have is a photo but not video. And I guess the great question is, who did that? What, were they looking to just erase him, you know, from film as well as from the record books? We do not know. And by the way, it's a little trivial thing. From what I read, Thorpe never did the pole vault before in his life until he went to the Olympic yeah. Games. To, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, yeah, and the decathlon is 10 events. I believe Thorpe at the Olympic trials to be selected for the team in New yeah. York City. He did the first day five events, and they were like, oh, my God, he's so good. You're on the team. Don't worry about the others, you know? And, uh, yeah. you know, some people say Thorpe was a great visualizer. Uh, he could watch somebody do something, you know, for 20 minutes. 
and then get up and do it. But Thorpe trained as well. You know, there, there was there was always this little stereotype, you know, that maybe he was, like, lazy and things like that. But according to Kvyat and according to Wheeler's research and others, Jim trained as well. You know, I mean, he had great natural ability without a doubt. But, um, you know, yeah. he definitely was training, and there was definitely a dedication aspect. The one hope, by the way, with the missing film, which which we try to get out there, is, is that maybe somewhere, we're thinking maybe in Sweden, uh, Swedish military filmed those Stockholm Olympics in 1912. Maybe somewhere in an attic, in one of those metal cases, is a full film <laughs> of Thorpe's Decathlon. That would be like finding, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? Uh, yeah. But one thing is, though, time is well, not a well, friend well, with old film. A lot of that film, you know, rots out yeah. in the metal containers. Yep. I, I, I forgot about this until I read your blog, but Thorpe wasn't even an American when he competed in the Olympics. I mean, Thorpe was Native American. Uh, you know, Thorpe was Native American. Um, you know, Kvyat was Jewish. I mean, there's, there's a lot. I mean, you know, was he edited out because of that? I mean, is it is it that uh, is, is it that bad? I guess. I mean, you know, it, you know these these are great questions, and they have perplexed people for years. And by the way, you know, I did want to let you know that um, the New York Times author Dave Moranis is in the process of finishing up his brand new book on Jim Thorpe, his brand new bi- biography on Thorpe. Um, it should be out. Uh, sometime this summer. And the question is that, you know, we're all fine because Moranis is a great writer. His book is called Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim. And, you know, oh, wow. people dig up historical stuff. And Moranis, like I said, is a phenomenal writer. He's, he's a award-winning writer. Did he find any new stuff out there? You know, uh, and, uh, you know, the oh. other question is, too, Thorpe's football coach, the great Pop Warner, who kind of, you guys would know more than me, but I believe, right, he revolutionized the game. You, you know? know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but Pop the question Warner. is Pop Warner. Pop Warner made a lot of money off of his Native American athletes as well. So, you know, yeah. he would farm them out, and he was being paid to be the Carlisle coach, also getting kickback money for the Native American yeah. athletes. And if I'm correct, uh, you guys might want to look into this. I believe that he was also made a co-head coach of another college somewhere where he never showed up but would send strategies, workouts by telephone or by snail mail. Yeah, and Pop Warner is one of those guys. Going back to, like you said, people said Thorpe was lazy. I mean, it's it's pretty common common knowledge. We we had a friend who wrote a very, you know, in-depth article on Thorpe. And apparently Thorpe wanted to marry, you know, his wife. And, you know, the father of the wife said, if you win the Olympic, you know, if you can prove yourself, perhaps we'll consider it. So apparently Thorpe trained, like, on the on the boat ride over. And I have a picture of him on that boat, uh, you know, mid-training, like running, lifting weights, et cetera. I mean, apparently Thorpe trained and was, you know, a physical specimen by the time he made it to Stockholm. But uh, Pop Warner is one of those very polarizing figures because if you think about, you know, Thorpe being sold down the river, you know, to the IOC stripping, at any moment Warner could have raised his hand and defended Thorpe. Uh, probably sure. got but he did, he did no such thing. In fact, the opposite. Uh, so, I mean, Pop Warner is one of those people that, to us, to us Jim Thorpe fans is, you, you know, he's, he's the Judas to me. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not a fan of Pop Warner because of that. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And it's funny. Uh, there's another great writer who lives in the Carlisle area, Tom Benji, B-E-N-J-E-Y, who writes about Carlisle football. This guy knows, like, everything, and I've been very grateful for his friendship. The one thing, talking with Bob Wheeler and Benji and others, is that for the rest of his life, Thorpe never – Bad mouth pop Warner. He just never did. Uh, you know. Uh, it's too nice. Like I said, you know, they, nice. they, they, you know, people are complex, it. and uh, you know, I think, uh, the IOC I think, you know, Thorpe had that relationship medals. with him. Yep. IOC came for Thorpe's medals, and he never argued. He never tried. He just handed them over. He was too nice. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. Maybe he was. Yeah. Subjected to being, you know, subjected 
to being treated like a Native American for most of his life, so he didn't think it was worth it. I, who knows? Like you said, it's complex. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because um, in that ESPN series, The Century, Jim Thorpe, and once again, I think you can find it on YouTube as well, John Thorpe, his son, you know, when he was asked by the, yep. like, you know, why would your dad give up the medals and stuff? He goes, well, you know what? I asked my dad that once, and he said, you know, people don't remember, you know, the Indian Wars were only over 25 years earlier. And he claimed his father said, we had enough problems understanding English than knowing the rules. That's true. Um, and that, that, that's from Thorpe's okay. son, you know. But, but Jim was massively loyal to Pop Warner, like massively to the end. So, you know, like I said, pe- people are very complex. Well, well, like I said, this new book coming out by Dave Moranis, we'll see, uh, you know, what he has. Yep. Yep. I don't know. If I, 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 I've sat and wondered uh, if Thorpe knew, you know, how little Warner did to defend him. But I don't know. You, you mentioned how crushing, you know, Thorpe was in the Olympics. Uh, in, in 2012, I did a, uh, an analysis on 100-year anniversary of this. I did a I went in and looked at every single, you know, uh, you know, final, you know, time, heights, whatever, you know, shot put from the decathlon and the pentathlon. And then I looked in every Olympics from that point on to see how long Jim Thorpe's record stood. And many of them stood until the 50s, you know. Uh, yeah, that's probably, uh, probably until uh, Bob, Bob Mathias came along and uh, I think yeah. broke a few of them. Jim Thorpe, who yeah. ran on Cinder, who – you know, who did day one of the 1912 Olympics and mismatched shoes because somebody stole his shoe. I mean, that's, right. know, that's how much of an athlete he was, you know, to set the bar so high, you know, even in pole vault, something he'd never done before. You know, it's just what a great athlete. So, you know, yeah, yeah you know, one of the things he did as well, you know, during the Great Depression, you know, uh, he did have jobs like digging ditches and stuff, but he was also in Hollywood. Yep. And uh, yeah. Thorpe's in some movies uh, that are stereotypical for the time. He plays like the evil Native American kind of thing. Um, yeah. But there's a couple of films in there that are very rare and very hard to find where, you know, he's doing the drop kick with the football. He's playing a little football in these films, you know, and these acting things. And the other thing that yep. Thorpe also fought for was uh, rights for other Native Americans, you know, to get a fair wage being in these movies. Yeah. I have a photo of Jim Thorpe digging a ditch in 1932 yeah. in Los Angeles uh, that I keep yeah. above my desk yeah. as, a, as a reminder to stay humble. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, also from his personal perspective, I know you mentioned some things. Um, you know, he was married, I believe, three times, uh, yeah. had a bunch of children, um, you know, and uh, he did spend the last years of his life, I believe, in a trailer. But the quest- we're, we're not yeah. sure if it was seriously related to money situations it might have been but but you know one of his sons once said you know people don't understand dad dad was a native american native americans don't plant stakes in the ground and live there forever they like to move around (laughs) yeah Yeah. you know and you wonder if that was part of his mo as well interesting i hadn't thought of that yeah Hmm. yeah but uh look the, the fight still goes on for thorpe and uh you know, it, it's just amazing that, uh, you know, in today's world, you know, the powers that be have been very resistant on the international level. Um, there, there's one person, though, that we're holding out hope for. Um, world Athletics is now the governing body for track and field around the world. And Sebastian Coe of Great Britain, who was a former mile world record holder, two-time gold medalist in the Olympic Games, is the chairman of the World Athletics. And uh, he is now a member of the IOC. And the IOC is a huge group. I mean, you know, a lot of bureaucracy, personalities and stuff. But Seb does want to see Thorpe's records get restored legitimately to the way they should be. So, you know, like I said, there's some positives going on. We just have to keep the movement going. And if people listening to this podcast would seriously consider just signing the petition, Bright Path Strong Petition, that would be a great thing. And the website also sells some really cool swag, as I like to say. I have these two oh. shirts of Jim Thorpe, and I go to a track meet, and people go, hey, where'd you get those shirts, you know? Oh, cool. And, uh, and it's all part of raising money for the Bright Path Strong, uh, you know, movement. So, but, uh, you know, they're really trying. They're, they're pushing for things. Uh, I know they've talked to NFL owners about possibly setting up petition drives at games. 
Um, but, it, but, you know, from a track and field world, in my world, the greatest thing to happen to America with track and field is actually happening this summer. From uh, July 15th to July 25th, the World Outdoor Track and Field Championships, the first time ever they will ever be in the United States. And they're going to be held in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, it's probably the brainchild. The movement probably started for that from Phil Knight, the CEO of Nike. Phil Knight. Who, uh, if you know anything about his background, Phil Knight is a trackaholic. And, uh, you know, I, he built a brand-new Haywood Field Stadium, you know, multi-million-dollar stadium there that's beautiful. Yep. And uh, Jeff, like I, I said, uh, we're, we're going to be there. In, I live in Portland, Oregon, which is about uh, oh, so, yeah. <laughs> a mile north. I'll give so you a little business advice. You may want to put I your go. house up for rent during that week because nobody's <laughs> people are having a difficult time finding places to I stay. Go, I go so, to U of O um, games all the time. I, I've been yeah. to Hayward Field for the Olympic qualifications before. It is, And they just absolutely remodeled it. It is stunning. Yes, so, it's beautiful. Beautiful. And yeah. – uh, like I said, who's who of world track and field will be there? Because many of the many of the late uh, many of the late great Olympic gold medalists who are still with us are members of federations. So, like you know, you could be with uh, the Cuban Federation and see the boxer Stevenson hanging out, you know, or Alberto Wantarena, the great sprinter, yeah. or uh, you know, uh, famous athletes from all over the world who will definitely be converging on Eugene this summer. And I'm hoping that the Bright Path Strong movement they'll definitely set up a petition thing there because I think track and field people along with football people would want to see this kind of injustice come to an end. I'll Jeff, pick up you... the swag. My wife is on the uh, endowment committee for U of O and wear my bright path shirt down there. All right. Yeah, that, that'd be great. That'd be great. I'd love <laughs> to see you there too. So listen, I, I, I've, I've only been to Eugene a few times, but uh, I saw that pancake place. So I could definitely take you out there if you want. <laughs> <laughs> And Jeff, by the way, but, with, but with all nice. these people, but with all these people coming, like it's going to be interesting to see logistically how the whole area handles it. Yeah. Oh, they know how to do it. But uh, we refer to Phil Knight as simply Uncle Phil, our rich uncle. Yeah, that's a good name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he was a guy. He was a guy who was a four ten miler, which is pretty good, not Olympic stuff. Yeah. You know, and uh, he got together with his coach yep. Bill Bowerman and a few other people, and they designed a the shoe and. Uh, you know, uh, if I remember the story correctly, Phil wanted to call his company Fifth Dimension, Fifth Dimension Running Shoes. And uh, I, I believe it was one of one of his cohorts there who uh, was a big Greek mythology person and said, no, yeah. we should name it Nakia for the Greek goddess of victory, Athena's daughter. And Nakia is spelled N-I-K-E. And I believe that guy, Jeff Johnson, to this day is still not happy that the company is called Nike. He's like, they all pronounce it wrong. It should be Nakia. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I know that. Uh, Jeff, we only got we only got a few more we only got a few more minutes, and uh, just want to get a couple more quick questions. And do you collect anything sure. with an Olympic theme or, or anything of Jim Thorpe? I'm sorry, what was that question again? Uh, do you collect anything with an Olympic theme or anything with uh, Jim Thorpe? Yeah, in recent years, I've driven my wife crazy by purchasing some things. Uh, the, the greatest thing, like, like if you guys, if anybody wants to check out eBay or check out a site, um, there are Jim Thorpe football cards that were published in the 1950s and even the 30s. The 30s ones are, like, very expensive. There's also, um, yep. there's also a card of Thorpe from 1912 in Stockholm, which is selling for, like, $900,000 <laughs> or something like that, you know? Um, there's, a to yeah, find... there's a couple of them. There's a couple I wish. Um but, no, uh, there's a couple but, um, of uh, 1912 uh, cards. Yeah, I'm a big Jim Thorpe collector. I know every card you're talking. Yeah. You're talking to a couple of collectors. Bob, Bob is the publisher of Gridiron Greats, which is a quarterly magazine about football collecting. So, tr- trust right. me, you're in the right room, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I I did purchase from a guy in Carlisle. Um, there was a book written called The Fabulous Red Men, and uh, it's about Carlisle football. And the author did a book signing in, I guess, 1951 or so when the book came out. And Jim Thorpe was president at the book signing. And apparently the author signs the book. And every book that was passed to Thorpe, he wrote, Me Too, Jim Thorpe. So the author would write yeah. best wishes yeah. from the author. He put, Me Too, Jim Thorpe. And uh, <laughs> I was able to purchase one of those about two years ago. Oh, incredible. Nice. Well, so yeah, yeah and I have, I have the receipt from the store. I have uh, – 
there, there was a Native American agent. He called himself an Indian agent with a business card in the book, uh, you know, things like that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, um, it's very interesting because, as you know, in the world of, like, collecting stuff, you don't know what's in somebody's attic. You don't know, you yeah. know, what's in your uncle's drawer. You, you never have an idea about what's really around. But, you know, I, I do have the Ted Williams Jim Thorpe card that yeah. came out, you know, in 1952, I believe. Yep. Yep. Jeff, we have a, a friend of ours, a mutual friend of Bob and I, named Mike Driscoll, who lives in Oklahoma and is who we consider kind of be that leading authority on Jim Thorpe. I mean, he has his notebooks from his school. I mean, he's got he, – he's incredible. Uh, you know, he's got, uh, he's got Jim Thorpe's personal notebook uh, with pictures of his Olympic medals, uh, but wow. obviously the medals were turned over. Uh, the million-dollar question no one has ever been able to answer, where the hell are Jim Thorpe's original 1912 medals? Because, as you mentioned, replicas were given back to him, to his family, when he was reinstated. From what I have read and, and seen, um, no one seems to know where they are. And the Swedish guy who uh, was declared the gold medal winner uh, did, not, uh, did not get those medals. He was given a separate, you know, set, you know, separate set of gold medals. So oh, you know, that 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 that's a great, uh, great question. And uh, you know, while I'm speaking with you, I'm I'm re re looking at the article I have here uh, about Jim Thorpe with the pole vault. I'm curious to see if Mr. Driscoll was the person who uh, Bob Wheeler was able to you know get the film from because I know he went to somebody in in Oklahoma. But, no. Oh, no, it, it, Bob Wheeler in 1967 was a guest in the home of Homer and Beth Ray, who were co-editors of the Yale, Oklahoma News. And uh, th they had known Thorpe, and so they had a copy of the Olympic film, But and Thorpe, Thorpe had given it to them as a gift. Incredible. Wow. So, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I've, heard the, I've heard the name Mr. Driscoll before as well. So, yeah. you know... Uh, you know, and uh, you know, it's it's all about it's all about making people aware the the awareness of Absolutely. many things. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the average American is aware. You know, history of Native Americans has had great tragedy. You know, especially over the last hundred, hundred and fifty years. You know, and history yep. is complex, and history is not easy. And as John Adams once said, facts are stubborn things. But um, Jim Thorpe's story is, without a doubt, filled with injustice, and it really should be, you know, addressed. Yep. I used that John Adams quote a couple weeks ago. I love that. It's one of my favorite quotes. There you go. There you go. So, and uh, on a personal note, I can just bring up something not related to Thorpe. Um, Staten Island had a NFL team here in the 20s called the Stapleton States. And uh, strong. he asked me, yeah, Ken Strong was a member, and uh, he's a member. We have a stand on Sports Hall of Fame here, and Ken Strong is in it. Um, and it's funny because we've been trying to check out some of my football guys are trying to find out, did Thorpe ever, Nyland, during that time period, to play or to attend? Mm. And we just can't find anything. And, uh, yet, I mean, mm. maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But, boy, if somebody has something on that, that would once again be a great, you know, holy grail thing here for Staten Island sports. Yeah. Well, 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 Jeff, we're almost, out of, we're, we're almost out of time. I want to thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Uh, great information. Uh, and, uh, again, where can people check out that, uh, check out that uh, petition for Jim Thorpe? Yeah, just Google Bright Path Strong or Bright Path Strong Petition. Um, it's out there. And, once again, hey, you want to buy some stuff? Some people would love to see the shirts and the clothing that they sell. It's really good stuff. Jeff, Benjamin, thank you for being on this evening. Uh, great information. Joe, we're down to about a minute. Got a handoff to you, our abbreviated two minutes. What would you pick up on Jeff, tonight, Joe? Jeff, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, one of my favorite topics, Jim Thorpe, and uh, you know the, the injustice that uh, that you know, was given to him with his Olympic medals. Uh, just Thank you for being on the show. Bob, I think just talking to someone who's on a parallel path, not a collector like us, but just a historian, 
you know, digging into something and and uh, to to hear that side of it and realize we've all come to the same conclusion. Amazing, truly amazing. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a couple of shows. Until then, check out our website, gridangreatsmagazine.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.